tonight I, I want to talk to you about some aspects of the teaching because this is such a, a rare and precious opportunity to be able to sit together and hear the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of the Dharma. So I um, take, take advantage of this this evening. The um, title of the talk uh, for the evening is, What Does It Mean to Respond with the Heart? What does it mean to respond with the heart? And I'd like to see if I can shed some light on that question for us um, as we start to move back into our daily life experience, because I think it's really what we all want, some way to be more heartful, to be more connected, to be more engaged in that way in our lives. In one of my interviews today, one of the people I was talking with sat down and started to tell me after 12 years of practice, doing you know, a fair amount of retreats and, and practice, that he's just really finding that he's so much easier on himself. And I just really appreciated that response so much because it just gives me such joy to hear that when people say it. And it happens a lot. As people progress in their practice, they develop more deeply in their practice. That's often what happens. That's, that's often what people come and report. I'm just, it's just easier now. I'm not as hard on myself as I used to be. I can just make the transitions easier from sitting to walking, from retreat to daily life. It's, it's not so jarring. It's, I don't feel sort of that roughness or that hardness. And I think it's interesting that that's one of the predominant things that changes as we deepen into practice. It sounds so simple, really. I'm just easier on myself. And yet that's it. We, we come into more of an ease in ourselves, in our, in our daily lives, in our relationships, in all the things we do. How does this happen? What happens for us? We usually come in to the meditation practice, sometimes in the beginning also as we continue on, with just so many ideas about how to be, you know, how we should be, how we should be showing up, how we should be doing in our meditation. And it's not only in our meditations, but we, we experience that all through our lives, you know, this, this demanding uh, a voice in our minds that's telling us how, how things should be all the time. And really, this is that uh, constricted ego. It's the constricted sense of ourself that moves through life in such a contracted and constricted, separate manifestation from everything else. We're just filled with so much information about what's good and bad and right and wrong and this should be like that, and that should be like that, and we hear ourselves, we, we feel ourselves in so often being reactive, contracted, tight, and not really uh, understanding so well what's actually going on, particularly in the beginning when we're first starting to turn back and look at our own minds and our own hearts. But when we come into meditation, we start to develop and uh, refine our understanding of the teachings, of the practices, we start to listen to something else, 
something that isn't just the noisy, chattering, uh, uh, the intensified thoughts in our mind. Something else starts to whisper through though that noise in the mind. And we start to gain access to another stirring, something that's stirring in us that probably has been stirring for a long time, but it gets overlooked, it gets missed. Something that's always been there, but we lose touch with because of these strong conditioned patterns of our mind. The patterns of greed, the patterns of hatred, the patterns of delusion that we've been talking about on this retreat. And our, I think our heart longs, you know, our, our heart is really longing to know this essential aspect of ourself that often manifests with a much quieter uh, expression than our thinking minds, which can sometimes seem like boulders, dropping boulders in a clear, still pond, and the waves just ripple out to the shore. We really are longing to be in touch with the wisdom that is expressed from that quiet place within our own heart. This yogi who I was speaking of also said, he said, I was in so much pain and exhaustion from the day the other day, and usually I just keep going. I have to go in and sit again. I have to you know, keep going with the practice, but I really wanted to after the Dharma talk, just go down and, and have, a, have a cup of tea and sit on the bench and look at the sky and just relax and just ease my, my tired body. And he said, and this time I did it. You know, I just went down there and I sat on the bench and I felt so relaxed and so good in myself. And he said, you know, the truth is I've had so many wonderful meditations sitting on benches. <laughs> and isn't that true? You know, when sometimes we can hear that, hear that other voice that's saying, take care of yourself. You can do it differently this time. You don't have to just push ahead, uh, force yourself to, to uh, push in the way you always have in the past, but something else is, is whispering there, and it gets listened to, and then all of a sudden something opens up. In fact, what opens up is that which we've been wanting and striving for through the efforts and the determinations. And we just have that cup of tea, sit down, and something opens inside. And I thought that was um, wonderful, again, that, that that sense of ease was starting to uh, come more often, and it was being, that voice was being listened to. So, so much of this meditation practice, so much of the teachings really are pointing to uh, how to be more friendly with ourselves. You know, sometimes we, make, we can make things so esoteric and kind of so mysterious and, you know, so vast, but so much of it is around this friendliness, being friendly with what we see in ourselves, what we uh, hear, what we see outside. How, how can we come into more of a friendly relationship with our experiences, both the inner experiences and the outer experiences, where we're not really giving ourselves such a hard time? 
So often we find ourselves fighting with our experience, sometimes in a subtle way, sometimes in a more gross way, reacting to what we see in ourselves, reacting to the things outside. And this conflict we find ourselves in reactivity just brings about more suffering, more and more and more of a ball, kind of a, a, a complex ball of pain and suffering. And sometimes we really don't know the way out, particularly if we haven't begun to look deeply into our own mind and our own hearts. So the first step, always the first step on a spiritual journey with spiritual path is acceptance, practicing acceptance, coming into a way of allowing things to be as they are, allowing our emotions to move as they do, allowing our minds to be in the, uh, the shape that they are, accepting the conditions in our life more often of the time. We practice, we radically practice this acceptance because unless we change our attitude towards our experience and allow for things to be as they are, we just can't see clearly. We can't see clearly because we're caught in the struggle, we're caught in the conflict, in the reactivity, and that becomes our experience. And so until we are able to start to find some layer, some outer layer of our experience where we can come into acceptance and say, it's okay, I can let this be the way it is, then we can start to have some space in the mind where we can see, we can see a little bit more of what's going on. We come out of that, that complexity of all those, those conflictive ideas and, and beliefs and start to see just a little bit. We need to begin with acceptance. And it's not a beginning like the beginning of our practice and then we come into acceptance and then we've done acceptance. But we continually circle around <coughs> acceptance as we as we uh, come into new experiences again and again and again. Because as we uncover those layers of our, of our mind, of our being, and start to examine what's there, we always see something new. We find something new about ourselves and we need to then allow and be open to the way things are again and again and again. It's always what needs to happen first. I, I like to tell this story that I think others have, some of you, some of you have heard here. It's a story about um, my mother. It seems like my mother comes up in my Dharma talks a lot. It's just, <laughs> I don't know why that is. But um, this, my mother is about 79 years old and lives in a condominium in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, uh, my father died about three, four years ago, so she's living there alone now. And one day, uh, she was taking the garbage out to, uh, she's on the fifth floor, so she had to take the garbage, go into an elevator and then take the garbage down to the garage where the, where the garbage is. So she went into the back elevator and as she went in, the <coughs> elevator doors closed. She went down and then the doors didn't open. Like she, she couldn't get the doors to open. So it's a rather small elevator 
And so she got really freaked out. You can imagine, 79 years old, all alone in this elevator that the doors wouldn't open and not really knowing that there's good air or oxygen or anything. So she really started to panic. I mean, just starting to uh, uh, just almost like scream and yell for help and wondering what was going to happen and really, really got scared. And then she remembered something that I've been telling her for years, and that is she said, breathe. <laughs> okay, just breathe. Charge has been telling me, you know, when I get really freaked out like this, just breathe. So she just stopped and she just started to breathe into the fear and breathe. And she was able to get herself fairly calmed down and to the extent that she actually just sat down in the elevator and was feeling very calm and was just kind of enjoying being with her breath. <laughs> and <laughs> and thought, okay, you know, we'll, we'll just see what happens. And then, as she was sitting there quite calm, this is probably over five minutes or so, as she was sitting there quite calm, she looked up and she saw there was a telephone in the elevator. <laughs> and it, it, it just, you could dial 911 or if there was any kind of an emergency, exactly what would happen. And so she, she went for the phone, uh, started to call, and then the doors just opened, <laughs> all by themselves. They just opened. <laughs> I just, I really like this story. <laughs> oh, a number of reasons. Well, I'm very proud of my mother is one of the reasons, but um, not that she listens to me very often, <laughs> especially around what me matters of meditation. But the fact, one is that she did remember, and she was able to bring herself to a place of calmness to the point where she was actually feeling some ease and contentment. But the truth of the fact is she was still stuck in the elevator. So it wasn't like the conditions changed. What changed? What changed was her mind. She wasn't putting all the layers of fear and anger and frustration and everything else, you know, the desire and the, you know, the, the panic that just builds up in the mind. And she was just able to, it's almost like taking the air out of a balloon, you know, the balloon could get really big with our, with our thoughts and emotions and fears and desires. And she just sat down and got very calm. So I think it shows, too, and it's such a good metaphor, really, for when the mind isn't so constricted and so filled with so much confusion, in that place of peace, there was even the possibility for some clarity in this case. And there is possibility for clarity. There's, it's the only opportunity we have for clarity, <laughs> because otherwise the mind is just too filled with confusion. Clarity doesn't have a chance to come through. Wisdom doesn't have a chance to come through in those situations. Some, for her, in the panic, the, something cracked through the panic where she did remember to rest for a moment, just to breathe for a moment. And it's the breathing that brought her back to a place of clarity and wisdom. So I think it's really a good reminder for us that our con the conditions in our life don't need to be different. The even the conditions in our mind and our body don't need to be so different. If there's something that 
we remember that again that outer layer I often just see see this uh, uh, metaphorically is we have to pull back some outer layer in order to start to get to the underlying issues there something that can help something that can break through that can shine through that can help us with the situation The teaching of the Buddha, which I like very much from the Samyutta Nikaya, um, called the Two Wounds. And I think this is a very important discourse that I wanted to share with you tonight. I, I've shared it other times as well, but I, I, I think it's an important enough teaching to hear again and again. And it's, the, it's, a, it's from one of the discourses of the, the Buddha that he gave during the time, the 45 years he was teaching. 2,500 years ago, and it's always interesting how these teachings are so relevant now as they were then. 2,500 years of humanity, and these teachings are so pithy for us. The Buddha says, what's the difference between an unenlightened disciple and a noble enlightened one? Both experience pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, and neutral sensations and feelings. What's the difference between the two? That's a very good question. What makes the difference between somebody who's considered enlightened and somebody who's not considered enlightened? The Buddha says an unenlightened one encounters, when an unenlightened one encounters unpleasant feelings, he grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest. He says he experiences two kinds of feelings, one in the body and one in the mind. He says, it's, it's as if an archer, after firing one arrow into a certain man, were then to fire a second arrow, that man would experience pain from both arrows. He experiences two kinds of pain, one in the body, one in the mind. A no, when a noble one encounters unpleasant feelings, he neither grieves, laments, nor wails, nor beats his chest. He experiences pain only in the body, not in the mind. Just as if an archer, having shot one arrow into a certain man, were to shoot a second arrow but miss the mark, that man would experience pain only from the first arrow. He experiences pain in the body, but not in the mind. So this teaching is really pointing to uh, a, re a reaction that one might have to a bodily pain, something that's happening in the body, which we can all relate to. So there's the sensation in the body, which is just the sensation in the body. And then there's the whole uh, conceptual overlay of our thought about that pain. And depending on what we're thinking about, it can create a whole nother layer of pain which is what then starts to complicate the whole situation. What the Buddha is pointing out, that it doesn't mean that one who is enlightened or a noble one doesn't have pain in the body, but there isn't the whole picking up of that pain with the mind and proliferating a whole series of, of problems and associations that just make a, that ball, that complex ball of more suffering. I find this such a good teaching, such a good teaching. When I was um, sitting here this afternoon at the 215 sitting, 
um, the air conditioner had only been on for about an hour, and I was still feeling pretty hot. And there was one point where I was sitting there, and I really felt like my whole body was turning into a, a furnace. <laughs> I mean, it was just like burning, just burning. Of course, being in menopause doesn't help. But, <laughs> but just so, I mean, really like a, a red-hot ember. And I was reflecting on this sutta, on this discourse. And I'm not sure at that time that I, I knew I was going to teach it this evening. But this often comes to me because I realized that what I was experiencing was a lot of pain in the body. And I could really complicate the whole thing by bringing a lot more in through my mind. I could start to uh, uh, really start to scream and say, I can't stand this. Why didn't they put the air conditioner on two hours earlier? I'm going to pass out. I'm going to die. You know, the whole kind of, <laughs> I'm going to fall off the chair and then what are the yogis going to think? You know, it's like the whole kind of proliferation of the story that can build up on top of this. But really, because I've, because I've really been reflecting on this for a while, just being able to sit there and feel the intensity of that heat, just in the body, very unpleasant, very painful in some respects, but not adding anymore, not, not, not bringing any more to the experience to complicate it, to make it worse. Oftentimes, I, t I use the metaphor with people uh, who, under who know this teaching. I say, oh, you're shooting the second arrow, huh? shooting the second arrow. Because we can often see that you know, the first thought doesn't actually matter. It's like, yeah, I'm really hot, and this is very unpleasant. But then if I start to shoot that second arrow, the second arrow through the mind of pain, <coughs> adding a lot more pain, we can often see this around our judging mind. You know, there may be the thought that arises about, oh, I, you know, I can't get back to the breath. I don't even know why I'm doing this practice. And then the noticing of the judging, and then, then another judgment. Oh, you, all you do is sit here and judge. You say, oh, your whole experience is one. You're just one big judgment. Second arrow, and then seeing that, if that's caught, it's like, there's another judgment. All I'm doing is judging. I don't even, you know, I, I just feel like I shouldn't even be doing this practice. And then it just builds up. There's more uh, uh, guilt about how you are, more shame about how you are. It can even ball up into a strong self-hatred towards yourself. There's no point in even being alive. Ways that we really can annihilate ourselves through the mind. I mean, this is what we do. We just keep shooting the arrows. When I was referring to this, uh, this discourse very briefly to somebody in an interview today and saying, uh, do you, you, know, you know about the second arrow? And he said, second arrow? You mean 162 arrows? <laughs> you know, what, that's what he used to do. You know, just keep shooting arrows constantly. So I really like this uh, metaphor for us to see if we can watch how we shoot these arrows, these arrows of judgment particularly. The judgments, many people talked about judgments in the interview today. He was catching the judgments, noticing how strong the judging mind is. 
this must be seen, as I said before, because it's, if it's not seen, we're just caught in the judgment. We're just caught in the struggle. If there's some way we can identify and say, yeah, that's the judging. That's the judging. And then somehow not keep following it, not keep building upon it, make it more, make it into who I am. We can start to have some freedom from the judging mind. It's really the judging that keeps a sense of our self in place. It really is like the judgment is sort of that twine of self in a way. It keeps us very bound up and constricted into how we then uh, feel about ourselves in the world as we move out towards others in the world. It's really insidious, this judging mind. I for. I thought that for after about six or seven years in my practice that I had finally overcome the judge. It was like, yeah, now I've seen it. You know, I really can catch those judging thoughts. You know, and it's, I really felt for a while my mind was quite free of the judging. And, re- and, when I, and I, I had a sense that it really was for the beginning stage of the practice. You know, we really can master that. And just recently, in the last couple of years, it's really starting to creep in again. And it's not the old judge, it's a whole new disguise of the judge. One that I hadn't seen and had been really identifying with as who I am. And it's really quite remarkable just how that judge can just keep circling around and take on a whole different kinds of of, uh, appearances. But it, it needs to be seen again and again and again. Because those are the parts of myself that stay hidden from myself. Because I'm believing that's who I am. I'm believing that's how I need to be in, in, in the world. I can't see through those judgments when I'm identified because I believe those thoughts are true. That's where my identity is, is constricted. And those judgments can become, we can become, become very self-righteous about those judgments. Well, I should be annoyed with myself, you know. My heart is closed, and I can't open my heart. I should be annoyed. Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I hate myself for this? I mean, it's like we want to defend ourselves, you know, that we should feel this way. Or, you know, my body's not healthy. My body's very sick, and I hate my body. Why shouldn't I hate my body? It's been a useless body. You know? And it's, it's like these are the kinds of things we, we, don't, we may not hear. We may not feel what we're doing to ourselves. We may not be aware of the arrows that we're shooting through the mind that's causing more pain and suffering for ourselves. One teacher, Zen teacher, Joko Beck, said, To live a life without judgment is what a realized life is like. To live a a life without judgment is what a realized life is like. And when I I hear that, I can get, get a sense of the spaciousness that would be there in the absence of the judgment, in the absence of the self hatred the space that would, I would be able to start feel, that I can feel in myself, where the wisdom heart 
can start to be heard, can be expressed through that space because it's, the judgment isn't so balled up in the mind. We give instructions in the hall and we talk about let things be, let it be, allow things to be as they are. And it's a strong instruction that's put out, it's been put out since the beginning of when I've heard the instructions, let it be, let it be. And this instruction really helps us come into a place of acceptance with our experience to see if we can take the time and just let things be. Little by little, we learn to let go and not fight with our experience in its different manifestations. It's a very important part of the practice, as I mentioned, with it's, a, it's, it's coming into that acceptance with our experience. Let it be. Let it be. But this instruction can also be somewhat confusing as we start to go along the path. Because if I think that letting things be is the goal of the practice, there's a possibility that this practice can become quite passive. Like just let things be and kind of get out of the way and stop interfering and let things be as they are. And, and, I, and I remember for a long time in my own practice being somewhat confused about that because it seemed like, well, I can't just let a lot of things be. It's not okay just to let my mind be filled with judgment or my heart be filled with anger or um, to be deluded and confused. It's not okay. Don't, I can't just let that be. And it took me some time to understand how to interpret this teaching because there would be times when I'd be very angry at something for, uh, for at some, someone for something that they did. And I knew that some action needed to be taken. And I couldn't just, just let it be. I, I, for a long period of time, I would find myself working with a great deal of depression. I would feel deeply dejected or unhappy at times. And this instruction was confusing for me because I knew that I couldn't just let the depression be. When, the, when I started to feel depressed, if I just let it be, I would find myself just falling into like the black hole of depression. I would just, it would just get worse and worse. It wasn't, it wasn't helpful. I knew that what I needed to do was actually refine my attention so that I could find out and investigate what was actually bringing about this, these depressed kinds of thoughts. I needed to pay attention in a very clear and precise way at those times. So I started to understand that it's not, the practice isn't about just letting things be because our habits arise and we need to pay attention so that we can draw on our inner wisdom to know how to respond to these very difficult aspects of our mind and body experience. The Buddha gave a very clear teaching on how to respond, how not to just let things be, and what to pay attention to so that we can help ourselves come out of the pain and suffering that we find ourselves in. 
this discourse is called Two Kinds of Thought. And the Buddha says in this uh, discourse, he says, uh, bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, before he was the Buddha, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, which is loving kindness, and thoughts of non-cruelty, which is compassion. And he goes on to say, as I abided thus, diligent, ardent, resolute, a thought of sense-desire arose in me. I understood thus, this thought of sense, sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction or pain, to others' pain and to the pain of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, and leads away from Nibbana. When I considered this leads uh, to my own pain, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' pain, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the pain of both, it subsided in me. This obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, and leads away from Nibbana. Whenever a thought of sense desire arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. So here's a very active way of working with the mind based on the wisdom of knowing that, if in this case, if he followed a particular desire, it was moving him away from something that was more important, in this case, liberation. So a very clear, active way of working with the mind. And he goes through the whole discourse talking about working with the thought of ill will, hatred, working with thoughts of cruelty, and then how it is when thoughts of renunciation or loving kindness or compassion arose in the mind. He says, when I abided, diligent, ardent, resolute, a thought of renunciation, which is the opposite of desire, renouncing the desire, arose in me. I understood this. This thought of renunciation has arisen in me, the acknowledgement of the thought. This does, this does not lead to my own pain or to others' pain or to the pain of both. It aids in wisdom, does not cause difficulty, and leads to nibbana. And then he goes through the thoughts of loving kindness and thoughts of compassion and how important it is, he says, um, um, if I think and ponder upon this thought, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I see nothing to fear from it. I see nothing to fear from it. So there's no reason to have to reject it, to push it away, to let it go. It actually aids in liberation. It aids in wisdom. So I think it's a, an another really wonderful teaching in showing us how to actively work with our minds. The Buddha says, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will be the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks or ponders upon, that's going to be the inclination of their mind. And so in this way, and we've been doing this with the loving-kindness practice, we're actually inclining the mind towards liberation, inclining the mind towards wisdom, inclining the mind towards freedom. 
inclining the mind away from suffering, away from conflict, away from pain. When I first started reading about this teaching, I became very excited about it because it gave me something very directly to look at, something some way to very directly work with my mind and then begin to influence my reality in a wholesome and positive way. I could start to pay attention to the thoughts that I needed to follow and needed to enhance the thoughts of, of love and generosity and patience and kindness, truthfulness, and, and move away from the thoughts that were cruel and judgmental and uh, leading to more suffering, more conflict. The Buddha said, I am a master of my mind. I think the thoughts I want to think, and I don't think the thoughts I don't want to think. I am a master of my mind. There's power there. There's power in that kind of ability, capacity to see what's present in any given moment. In order to do that, in order to have that kind of clarity, that kind of, of uh, brightness of mind, what's required is what's called wise discrimination. And wise discrimination is a different kind of a judge. You know, we have the negative judge, the judge that is actually interfering and creating a lot of ill will and conflict and difficulty. But we may say there's a, here's another kind of judge. This is the wholesome judge, the, the helpful judge. And it's called the, the wise discriminator the one that can actually see and know the difference between what's wholesome and what's not wholesome, what's beneficial and what's not beneficial. And wise discrimination is an aspect of our mind, it's a, it's a facet of awareness itself that can actually see and know when the mind is awake, when the mind is present, when the mind is aware. We have the ability to discriminate and that wisdom develops over time as we continue to look, as we continue to see, as we continue to investigate and look more deeply into the consequences and the effects of our thoughts, our speech, and our action. This aspect of our awareness, it implies something that knows, something that is wise, that is not necessarily the thinking mind. It's that which knows the thinking mind. It can't be the thinking mind because the thinking mind can't really know the thinking mind because then you would just go round and round. And <laughs> it has to be something, and it's not even a thing, but that which can perceive the thinking mind itself. Awareness. Awareness that knows, awareness that has the wisdom itself to discriminate. This is an aspect of consciousness itself. It's, a, it's, our, it's our innate gift. It's a, an offering to us when we come into human existence. This conscious awareness itself. It's not an intellectual knowing, but, but we say it's an intuitive knowing. It's a sense of things, a sense of how things should be, not coming from the old imposed conditioned ideas of right and wrong that we've heard 
ad nauseum from the time we were born, but something starts to shine through our heart. Something starts to come through our heart that, that is expressing an innate knowing or an innate wisdom. We might even say an innate goodness of our being, that which we are, that which is connected, that which is in touch with the things of this world that which is connected to its own knowing, its own sense of, of things. We might say, from our heart. And it's this that really does allow us to make wise choices in our life. When we're not trapped in a whole set of rules, and a whole set of imposed moralistic rules, but something we start to listen into, we start to have access to that knows what's right and what's wrong, because we start to feel it, we start to know it. The Buddha has these two words that I know James would be happy if I talk about, he loves this too. There's these words called hiri and otapa. Hiri is the Pali word for moral shame. When we actually uh, can feel, we have a sense of conscience conscience, uh, which, is, which is dominated by a sense of self-respect. We really care about the consequences of our actions in the world. We, we can kind of feel it. Um, it's called hiri, or moral shame. And otapa is the Pali word for, um, translated as the fear of wrongdoing, um, the fear that uh, other people are going to know uh, what a schmuck we are, you know, or <laughs> how, you know, how, how silly we are. <laughs> Maybe that was the wrong word. <laughs> it's just from my, my conditioning. But it's that, isn't it? It's that fear that somebody's going to know that, you know, how, how silly we are deep, deep in our hearts. And, and the Buddha calls these two things the guardians of our world because they serve as the foundation of morality for us because they touch something in our heart. Again, it's not some kind of imposed ideas of right and wrong, but something moves, something stirs in our own heart. We know what's right and wrong because we care about what others think. We care about the effects of our actions. We care about whether we're causing suffering in the world. We have the sensitivity. We, 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 we're open. Our hearts are open enough that that sensitivity is there as we move through, through our world. We're awake. We're connected. And our heart stirs as we're involved in our speech and our actions and bodily actions. The Buddha says, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scriptures, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement with your views, by probability, or by the thought, well, this person is my teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when undertaken and carried out, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. 
When you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when undertaken and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. Very clear, very clear teaching. So it's so important for us to start to access this wise voice, this wise voice in ourselves that is not this critical, judgmental voice which we so often identify with, or that part of ourselves that gets crushed and dejected by that uh, critical voice where we feel so uh, victimized or small or doubtful in ourselves. We can find ourselves swinging between those two aspects of ourself and just feel exhausted and tired and pushed around by that pol- those polarities of, of, um, of, of manifestations in our mind. I find, when I reflect back over these years, I actually realized that that wise voice was always speaking to me. It was always speaking to me. It was always there, but I didn't trust it. I didn't listen to it. I listened to the critical voice that was putting the high standards up, or I felt the person who was crushed because I couldn't reach those high standards. And I wasn't able to trust the voice that was saying other things to me. I realized that I was just too fearful about what people would think if I acted from my wisdom, or I would do something wrong, or I'd make a mistake, I couldn't take the risk. But I was being informed. That voice was always there. And when I think of this, it really does give me hope. It gives me hope that I can begin to quiet down and really start to listen listen in a way that I've never listened before, and to trust, to really trust the voice, trust the stirrings, trust that expression that is really starting to come through my heart. When I have the space, when I'm not so uh, uh, pressurized by all those conflicting voices of negativity and anger and fear and frustration, when the mindfulness is present enough that embraces all of that, where I can see what's happening, that space in the mind gives me some freedom. I feel a freedom from the identification of that ball, of that sense of self, or the self that I take to be me. I have the possibility of a different location from which to perceive what's happening. When I see my thoughts and to know my feelings, to observe my intentions, to recognize the power of my desires and my fears, all this, seeing this clearly, leads to more and more self-understanding and leads to deeper wisdom. These teachings really are wisdom teachings. That's what these teachings are about. It's about deepening into the wisdom that we already are, that we've lost touch with. These practices help peel away the layers of self, how we identify ourselves to be, 
so that can that which we truly are can shine through and be expressed more and more in the world. These practices help us move out of this duality of right and wrong and good and bad and should and shouldn't and come into a very different place in our being where something else is speaking, something else is informing us and saying, yeah, this is okay, this isn't okay, this is right, you can continue with this, no, this isn't, you can't continue with that. This is a poem from Rumi. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense anymore. So perhaps through the silences and the meditations and the contact with the nature, resting into the Sangha, the community of people here, you can begin to enter, to, to smell <laughs> the grass in that field where we can meet each other in a fresh way, in a new way, without all of our ideas imposing and just be there. Responding with our heart. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Thank you.